0: hello and welcome to crime theories of the record the podcast series where i talk about my interpretation of crime theories this is your host Karen. just when you thought you knew everything about crime we find ourselves rejecting individualism. As discussed in previous episodes, most early theories located the sources of crime within the individual. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I have done some research on the topic and share that I actually have done research on some of the theories that are attributed to the Chicago School of Thought. Off the record, those are academic projects that can be found on Google Scholar. Shifting our gears to the Chicago School of Criminology, not sociology, we see an aim to move past the simple hardline classic explanations of crime and delinquency. I do want to emphasize that the Chicago school is sometimes referred to as the ecological school of thought as this is one of the many times that sociology bleeds into criminology. Of the record, the Chicago School of Criminology is one of my favorite schools of thought because it is usually identified with neighborhood studies of crime and delinquency that focus particularly on the spatial patterns of such behavior, especially as reflected in maps of their spatial distributions. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of books and articles that discuss the history of the Department of Sociology at the University of Chicago. As the United States entered the 20th century, a competing and powerful vision of crime emerged a vision suggesting that crime, like other behavior, was a social product. The earlier theories did not vanish immediately or completely. Indeed, in important ways, they continued to inform current-day thinking and can still be seen illustrated in pop culture. This major theoretical shift, one that rejected individualistic explanations on crime in favor of social explanations, might have been expected. Like, seriously, just think about it. Society was undergoing significant changes, and people's experiences were changing as well. The timing was literally on point regarding new understanding of why some citizens break the law. By the end of the 1930s, two major criminological traditions had been articulated that sought in David Smarza's 1969 words, to quote-unquote relocate pathology. It was moved from the personal to the social plane. The first of these traditions, the Chicago School of Criminology, argued that one aspect of American society, the city, contained potent criminogenic forces. On the other hand, we have Robert K. Merton's 1938 strain theory that contended that the pathology lay not in one ecological location, in this case, the city, but rather in the broader cultural and structural arrangements that constitute America's social fabric. These two traditions differ in their belief that society created lawbreakers, but agree that the key to unlocking the mystery of crime was in understanding its social roots. Together, they offered a strong counterpoint to explanations that blame individuals for their criminality. Of the record, the Chicago School of Criminology is the hub of a variety of theories which I will further discuss in more detail, but for now, I will introduce you to an explanation of white crime is concentrated in certain communities. Well, why cities? Well, Watson, to my Sherlock, if you consider the name of this school of thought and the enormous changes that transformed the face of the United States and made the city the nation's focal point, you might notice the rapid growth of cities. During the latter half of the 1800s, cities grew at a rapid pace and became, as Palin 1981, observed, quote-unquote, a controlling factor in national life. Cities were popping. Chicago's growth was particularly remarkable. When the city incorporated in 1833, it had 4,100 residents. By 1890, its population had risen to 1 million. And by 1910, that count surpassed 2 million. But such a rapid expansion had a bleaker side. Many of those settling in Chicago and in other urban areas carried little with them. There were waves of immigrants displaced farm workers and African Americans fleeing the rural south. Off the record, most of this wave of immigrants and groups of people saw the city as a source of much hope, very much like the American dream. However, the reality they face and in some cases still face nowadays is the harsh reality of a pitiful wage, working 12-hour days, 6 days a week, in factories that jeopardize their health and safety and having to go home to the slums. That is obviously not accounting for the hate, the trauma, and racial microaggressions that some of these groups face. Nowadays, when you think of the slums, your mind might drift to the third world countries' illustration of densely packed, incomplete, or deteriorating housing units, or if you're more like me, your mind might drift to the Great Gatsby, Valley of Ashes, or Upton Sinclair's novel, the jungle. With this in mind, it is not that hard to see why criminologists believe that growing up in the city, particularly in the slums, made a difference in people's lives. In this context, crime could not be seen simply as an individual pathology. It made More sense when viewed as a social problem. This conclusion was reinforced by a broad liberal reform movement that arose early in the 1900s, the progressive movement. Although they believed in the essential goodness of America and so rejected calls for radical change, progressives were critical of the human cause brought by America's unbridled industrial growth. The progressives rejected the social Darwinist logic that the poor and the criminals among them were biological inferior and had fallen to society's bottom of the ladder. The progressives prefer a more optimistic interpretation in which the poor were pushed by their environment, not born into a life of crime, which this optimistic and depending on your perspective, white-save or complex approach led to the age of reform. Per the name, a lot of policies and practices intended to allow the state to treat the individual needs and problems of offenders such as juvenile court, community supervision through probation and parole, and indeterminate sentences. This belief warned that the social fabric of urban slums created crime. By the 1920s, Robert E. Park, a newspaper reporter turned sociologist, was particularly influential in shaping the direction of this work. Park concluded that the city's development and organization, like any ecological system, were not random but rather patterned and therefore could be understood in terms of basic social processes, such as invasion, conflict, accommodation, and assimilation. He observed that the nature of these social processes and their impact on human behavior, such as crime, could be ascertained only through careful study of city life. Several scholars, most notably Clifford Shaw and Henry McKay, embraced Park's agenda and explored how urban life fundamentally shaped the nature of criminal activity. This eventually led to the foundation for the Chicago School of Criminology. I know I have covered a lot of material so far, but if you need a break to collect your thoughts, feel free to do so. I encourage you to pause and really let this topic sit with you. If you want to learn more about Sean McKay's theory of juvenile delinquency, tune in for next week's episode. (laughs) Off the Record. This podcast series is brought to you by Encore. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. If you're loving what you're learning, follow us on Instagram at ct.offtherecord. That is at ct.offtherecord, where you can visualize some of these theories and get some scoops on upcoming episodes. Come join us and please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to join me for next week's episode.